This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Leading thinkers, from President Barack Obama to Thomas Friedman, argue that innovation is key to improving the United States economy, now and in the future. If that's the case, how do we prepare young people to become innovators? That's the question Tony Wagner, Harvard University's first innovation education fellow at the Technology and Entrepreneurship Center, asked in his new book, Creating Innovators, The Making of Young People Who Will Change the World. To find the answers, Wagner profiles several young innovators, drawing on interviews with them and their parents, educators, and mentors to discover the forces that have driven them to succeed in thinking outside the box. In your 2008 book, The Global Achievement Gap, you identified seven survival skills children need to succeed. In your new book, you add to those skills. You write, only one set of skills can ensure this generation's economic future, the capacity for innovation. What has changed since 2008 when your last book came out, and why do you think innovation is now so critical to America's future? Well, what changed, Shannon, is the global meltdown uh, in 2008. You know, my book came out then, and I got a tremendous validation about the seven survival skills and how important they were. But then I saw college students coming home with a BA degree, seemingly having mastered some of those skills, but in fact not having a job. And right now today, 53% of all college students under the age of 25 are either un- or underemployed. A third of them are living at home. So I began to ask myself if these skills were enough. And the more I studied the problem, the more I realized that the economic collapse in this country is particularly driven by the fact that we have a a consumer-driven economy. Uh, And I sort of concluded that that economy is in turn driven by debt. So we've created an economy based on people spending money they do not have to buy things they may not need, threatening the planet in the process. And as I really studied and I tried to understand what's the alternative, what's going to be the engine of uh, American economy going forward if, it's, if this consumer-driven economy is not sustainable, I came to understand the importance of innovation and uh, then became interested in the question of how, in fact, do you grow an innovator? What must we do differently as parents, teachers, mentors, and employers? And to that end, you profile several young innovators in the book, and you also look at their network of influence, including their parents, educators, and mentors. Uh, Who did you talk to, and what surprised you the most? Well, I talked to a very wide range of young innovators in their 20s, some innovators in so-called STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, Uh, some who were artists and musicians, some who were uh, social entrepreneurs. And so it was a kind of a demographically and... and, uh, representative sample of kind of young innovators out there. Then, as, as you point out, I talked to all of their parents. And then I asked each one of them, could they name a teacher or a mentor who'd made the greatest difference in their lives, in their development of their capacities to innovate? About a third of them could not name any teachers. Um, they all could um, name at least some adult in their lives. So two-thirds could name a teacher. The other third named mentors. And so I interviewed each one of those teachers and mentors, trying to see if I could find both patterns of parenting and teaching that contribute the most to the development of a young innovator. And you did identify three forces that really drive innovators, play, passion, and purpose. How does that behavior pattern work? 
Well, let me back up a half a step because it's actually part of a larger picture. What I discovered is that in every single case, the teachers who had made the most critical difference in the lives of these young innovators was an outlier in his or her educational setting. I'm talking elementary school through graduate school. Every single one of them was an outlier. And uh, what made them outliers were the ways in which they taught. And the ways in which they taught were very consistent with what I saw to be some of the, 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 the practices in the leading educational institutions that produce innovators. I'm talking about uh, the Stanford D School, the MIT Media Lab, and above all, the Olin College of Engineering, which I also profile in the book. And I came to see that the, the culture of schooling in America is radically at odds with a learning culture that produces young innovators in five essential respects. Number one, culture of schooling is all about individual achievement, ranking kids, whereas the culture of innovation demands collaboration. And every one of these teachers and classes I observed uh, really build teamwork into all of their assignments. Number two, culture of schooling is all about specialization. And while that certainly has a role um, in innovation, what's very clear in the world of innovation is a problem-based, multidisciplinary approach to learning. Uh, number three, the culture of schooling is risk-averse and penalizes failure. Culture of innovation is all about taking risks and learning from mistakes, trial and error. Number four, uh, the culture of schooling is a very passive experience where people uh, essentially sit all day consuming information and then regurgitating it. Culture of learning for young innovators is all about creating, not consuming, real products for real audiences. And lastly, and this is where play, passion, and purpose fit, Culture of schooling really relies on extrinsic incentives to motivate learning, carrots and sticks, A's and F's. Uh, But I discovered that these young innovators were far more intrinsically motivated. And when I looked at the pattern of what parents and teachers had both done to encourage intrinsic motivation, I found a, a kind of remarkable emphasis in both places, in the classrooms and among the parents, of play, passion, and purpose. And can you tell us more about those? Yeah. Um, the parents of these young innovators encouraged more exploratory play, uh, less programmed time for the kids, more discovery-based play, fewer toys, limiting screen time, toys without batteries. Uh, and they really valued their young people, their children, finding and discovering a passion. Whatever it was that they were interested in, these parents supported that because they understand that it's the pursuit of a passion that really develops the kind of persistence and, and the confidence that you need to succeed as adults. Same with the teachers. They built time into every class for uh, young people to pursue an idea or to pursue uh, projects of particular interest to them in the context of the subject. And what I found is that among these young innovators, as they pr- sort of pursued their passions, they morphed, they changed, they evolved. But in every case, uh, they kind of uh, matured into a deeper sense of purpose because parents and teachers alike had talked about giving back or making a difference. And these young people had these values very deeply in kind of what, what they chose to be doing. And so the, the sense of purpose as adults became kind of adult play as well as an expression of their passion. Right. And to, to, so, to sort of go farther with that, in your book you note that millennials, who you refer to as the innovation generation, want to make a difference more than they want to make money. 
um, that speaks to the intrinsic motivation. Laura White, one of the young innovators you profiled, said she's not afraid of poverty. I believe I can make it work if it's doing the right thing. And then in Compton's afterward, he says that the biggest hurdle for this generation of innovators is making passion pay the bills. Do you think that's true? And if so, what do you think are some of the solutions for that challenge? I don't know what the solutions are, Shannon. I, I think this generation certainly is um, believes they can live on less. You know, kids say, well, I don't need to own a car. I'll, you know, I like to bike anyway, so I'll get a zip car when I need a car. Uh, they say, well, I don't, I don't know that I want to buy a house. It ties me down. I see myself moving around a lot. You know, th- those are easy things to say when you're in your 20s. Uh, when you're in your 30s, when you're thinking about a family, that picture may change. Uh, having said that, though, I, I don't see this generation becoming suddenly more materialistic. Uh, they, they've been exposed to too much in the sense that they, they have a broader understanding of the world and the challenges that we face as a planet and as a species. And I don't think they're going to easily turn their backs on those. What they may end up doing is kind of some compromising in terms of who they're willing to work for. None of these young innovators really see themselves working for large corporations, or if they do, it won't be for very long. And that may possibly change, but I don't know for sure. Right. Um, You note that many adults interpret a young person's belief in social justice as naivete, what message do you have for young people who are not surrounded by a supportive network? <laughs> you need one. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, that's one of the things I discovered was uh, the important role of nonprofits like Ashoka and a host of others that are springing up uh, that support social innovators and entrepreneurs. And I think that's a vital network uh, for a young person who has those interests to in some way be a part of. Uh, and it and made a critical difference among the young social innovators and entrepreneurs whom I interviewed. And so, in other words, they should seek out those opportunities. Yeah, and I think they're doing it. You know, this is a far more connected uh, generation, and, and they know how to go find support for what they want and need. And they're doing it, I think, very successfully. How can parents, mentors, and others help young people to develop creativity and the skills of innovation as they Well, the age, first, as right? I said, is to encourage more exploratory play. So many parents... Uh, kind of are programming their kids' days and weeks, um, are, trying to, are worrying about their kids' uh, uh, resumes, you know, in kindergarten or even earlier. And, and what they need to understand is that, first and foremost, um, the passion derives from kind of more exploratory play. I don't know whether you pick this up in the book, but I uncovered research to the effect that many of the most successful entrepreneurs and innovators today were, in fact, products of Montessori schools, where it's much more of a play-based form of learning. And I think the second thing is that parents need to understand they cannot and they should not try to protect their children. Uh, You know, too many parents are helicopter parents. They're trying to hover. They're trying to tell their children how wonderful they are, regardless of what they do, which I think is a huge mistake. Um, you, You really have to allow kids to experiment and to make mistakes, because that's how they're going to gain self-confidence. They don't gain real self-confidence from uh, having been protected and living in a cocoon all their childhood. Um, one of the things that's very interesting about the book, in addition to the ideas that you express, is you've also used an innovative format for the print and ebook versions that blends 15th and 21st century technologies, or as Compton says, from Gutenberg to Zuckerberg. It includes um, embedded QR code codes that link to more than 60 original videos by uh, by uh, Robert Compton. What made you decide to take that unconventional route, 
And what do you think readers gain by having access to the videos? Well, I think Bob Compton deserves huge credit for, for this because we were sitting together um, at a restaurant in Singapore where we'd both gone to perhaps make another film. We, we made a film together called The Finland Phenomenon Inside the World's Most Surprising School System, which is a 60-minute documentary about the highest-performing education system in the world. So we had that uh, kind of partnership and prior work experience. And uh, what he said to me was, Tony, you can't just write a book about innovation. It has to be innovative. And so he proposed this idea of QR codes and offered to make the videos. Uh, I believe very strongly that videos add a huge dimension to understanding what 21st century learning can and should look like. Uh, we have videos from High Tech Hive, uh, a remarkable school that does an outstanding job of teaching the dispositions of innovation and the skills needed, including my seven survival skills from the Global Achievement Gap. We have um, classroom footage from the Olin College of Engineering. And you also uh, have the opportunity to meet these young innovators and many of their parents, as well as some of their teachers. So you have, a, I think, a much more visual and personal experience with the book, in addition to you know a solid uh, print experience as well. What advice do you have for young people who want to hone their innovation skills? Well, I think, first and foremost, they must follow their dreams. You know, it's one of the most gratifying um, responses that I've had to the book are in reaction to the, the letter to a young innovator that I write at, at the very end. And it's really comes, comes from the heart, comes from my own experience of having tried to be an innovator in my own field, where I try to offer advice. And uh, I've had a number of emails from young innovators saying how important it was and how affirming it was to have that kind of help and advice about pursuing their passion. Uh, there are other things that I say is kind of advice to young innovators in that little three-page letter, um, but probably one of the more important things is to, is to not think you can do this alone and to, to try to find mentors and, and uh, colleagues to work with. And, and to, to, to stay true to, to what your passion really is and to your sense of a larger purpose in life. Thank you so much for uh, your contribution with this book and also for speaking with us at Knowledge at Wharton today. That's no, my pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.